another installment of The Conspiracy Skeptic. I'm your Conspiracy Skeptic, Carl Mamer, and with me is my returning guest, Stuart Robbins. Stuart, hello. Hello. Yeah, welcome welcome back. This might be your, I don't know, fourth appearance? Uh, I don't know, but it's definitely the fourth time we're trying to record this. Yeah. <laughs> Let's... Let's not trouble our our <laughs> listeners with with uh, yeah we were tr- I'm recording this on Monday we tried to record this on Sunday and um, I think uh, the what the Pleadians the uh, Billy Myers Pleadians I think they were uh, they were using their their little laser beams or something to interfere yeah, with the, our, the intertubes were messed up or something I think it's just everybody using Skype on Sunday night now to call back to uh, you know call back to the home or something like that could be anyways all right so i guess for you know for our uh listeners who haven't you know listened to you in a while could, could refresh us who who you are i am uh actually very demanding of a new position on the conspiracy skeptic podcast because i don't know if you realize this but i do listen to episodes in which i'm not featured and on the last episode, you you mentioned something that I'm not sure you wanted me to hear. I, right, I, I did hit my last guess was Amira, and I did I, I did claim that you know that you she did unseat you as the the coolest guest on Conspiracy Skeptic, but you're still you're still second best. Uh huh. You know, I mean, there's six there's six billion people in the world, and so you're like, you know, number two. So like. One out of six billion. I mean, that's that's not even a rounding error, Stuart. Well, nonetheless, I think that I need a promotion from my uh, current position as staff astronomer to astronomer royale of the conspiracy skeptic. Uh, I think so. Okay, and it'll come with a 10% raise. How about that? 20%. Tw- all right, 20%. So 20% of zero. But I, I did put in a plug-in for you for if um, you know if people see you to uh, to buy you a beer. Yeah, except uh, I don't really drink uh, alcohol, and I don't drink coffee. I don't really drink tea. Um, instead of beer, if you see me, other than just saying hello, if you feel the need to buy me something, chocolate works. All right, chocolate. Okay, what about hot chocolate? Hot chocolate is good, um, except, you know, it it's liquid and you drink it and it goes by much faster than a chocolate bar. All right. You don't have any sort of exotic, you know, slightly fancy expensive beverages you enjoy imbibing? Uh, no. No. All right. Okay. <laughs> I'm cheap. Okay. So when you're when you're not uh, acting as the role of uh, well, I think you you I think you were first like consulting astronomer, and then I, I promoted you a staff astronomer, and now you've sweated out promotion to astronomer royale. Yeah, I really well, had to twist your leg there. Yeah, and uh, which uh, which I think that isn't that a uh, isn't that a burger in Belgium or something? It's in the quarter no, pounder it's cheese. It's a British official astronomer guy. Okay, all right. Well, and, next... you know, Canada is uh, you know isn't it part of the British Commonwealth or something? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, 
All right. I think next well next episode we'll have to like endow a chair or something at Oxford or Cambridge or something in your name. So yeah, if I slate you again, so that, 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 I, I'm thinking that's expensive though to endow a whole chair at Cambridge. Probably, um, you know, unless it's a cheap office chair. But I would assume if it's at Cambridge, they would insist on leather. You're giving me ideas. Okay, <laughs> we should we should move on. All right. So you in your day job when you're not uh, when you're not uh, as I was saying you're not being astronomer royale to the conspiracy skeptic podcast. What's what's your what's your day job again? Well, instead of the high placed astronomer royale, I would be the lowly astronomer graduate student. Uh, I am working towards my PhD, hopefully defending my dissertation in astronomy in uh, about six months. Or if you're hearing this in mid-April 2011, then hopefully I will already have defended and been approved committee willing. Okay. Now, will you prefer Dr. Stu or Dr. Robbins? Um, I don't know. I'll figure it out and let you know. All right. Okay. All right. All right. So, uh, all right. So you're back on to talk about not your favorite conspiracy, my favorite astronomy <laughs> conspiracy, which I'm always sort of like every every couple weeks. I'm like, why don't you come on my podcast and do that thing this time? And so finally, you've <laughs> because you wanted to berate me about the cool comet. <laughs> you're like, well, uh, yeah. I mean, your your viewers may not know this, but. Uh... Way back when, when you first contacted me to be on your show, you wanted me to talk about uh, this conspiracy, this particular one, which they probably know of because it's going to be in the title of this episode. Exactly. Uh, So you wanted me to talk about Richard Hoagland, um, but you also build your show as – you're going to talk about your favorite conspiracy where you is the guest. And I'm like, I I don't – Richard Hoagland, bleh. Bleh. So (laughs) – so I talked about 2012 at the time. Right, yes. It was a good episode, yep. Yeah. Well, so 2012 I'm kind of bored with now, so um, um, although I will actually put in a plug at the end of the episode. Remind me if I forget. But yeah, you wanted me to talk about Richard Hoagland, and um, for those of you who do not know, Richard Hoagland is pretty much known as the face on Mars guy. If nothing else, he's right. known for the face on Mars. Um, but in terms of some background information, I mean, he is a 65-year-old male. Um, he and male usually going together. Uh, he was uh, lives right now in New Mexico, and he has a somewhat um, debatable past. Mm-hmm. Uh, he claims that he was the uh, science guy uh, for Walter Cronkite, who actually just died last year. Um, and Walter Cronkite afterwards has called Hoagland's um, ideas hocus-pocus nonsense. So <laughs> I've never found it disputed that Hoagland was the science guy for Walter Cronkite, but I've also never really found it supported. Right, okay. Um, so we'll just sort of leave that for what right. it is. But he's, he's – you know, I mean – to glom onto uh, Walter Cronkite's name because he's like, I mean, before right. he died, he was like the most trusted man in America, frequently voted every year, right? Right. And, um, you know, Richard Hoagland has globbed on, as you put it, to a lot of things. Like when he's often interviewed on Coast to Coast AM, he, uh, he will frequently talk about his relationship with Gene Roddenberry. 
Now, again, this is a claim that he makes. I've never seen it disputed, but I've never seen it actually backed up. But Hoagland will often say, yeah, you know, I'd be in Gene's office and we'd be talking about this, that, or the other thing. And again, sort of just writing that almost argument from authority, although I'm not sure what authority a science fiction writer would give you. But there are a lot of Trekkies out there. That's true. Again, it's trying to buy trying to buy some cred maybe or something. Right. And now he is the science advisor to Coast to Coast AM. But not their science advisor Royale. No, no, I, I, I'm the Royale for you. But uh yeah, no, he's he is their science advisor and for your listeners slash viewers, if you ever make this into a vodcast, oh. uh, Coast to Coast AM is a probably I think it is the second highest syndicated radio show in the world, um, or at least in America. I'm pretty sure the world it has over 540 affiliate stations, and it is listened to regularly by over 10 million people. And it's a four-hour nightly talk show, right. and it covers conspiracy theories, alternative medicine, psychic stuff, ghosts, this, that, and the other stuff. And Hoagland is their science advisor. Right. And, and that radio show, I mean, you listen to it a lot for kind of inspiration for your, your, your blog. Yes. Uh, yes, I do. Um, I, I find it almost addicting, even though I've been told that it's really not good for me. <laughs> <laughs> but – I mean, you know, if you listen to it from the sense of, I'm going to escape to this fantasy world where elves and fairies are, you know, could be real, then it's a perfectly valid thing to listen to. Because, you know, and actually that's not really um, too far of a cry because they have had guests on that claim that elves and fairies are real and that they wrote a book that was dictated to them by a gnome. <laughs> so, I, I I just like the idea that you 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 kind of listen to it so we don't have to. You're just kind of, you're just right. there. Yeah, you're just there on the sort of on the, the, the I don't know in the trench or you know taking point and going. Okay, guys, there's some really weird crap coming down from uh, from the podcast beat or the radio show. Be warned. Yeah, I, I get ideas from my blog from it. Um, yeah, and yeah. Uh, the name of your blog is. The name of my blog is Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy, and that can be found at pseudoastro.wordpress.com. And I believe your, your, your 2012 uh, series of 2012 posts, kind of, it attracted a lot of kind of fundamentalist Christians who, who sort of don't believe in you know, 2012. But I mean, not for reasons necessarily of science, because you know, God's not going to destroy the earth in 2012, you know, because all these biblical prophecies haven't come true. But a lot of times they're linking to your blog, right, to to sort of go, no, here's the science, and 2012 is. Yeah, um, I've found that kind of interesting. I, I do get um, referrals from Christian forums on my blog, and which I find kind of interesting, especially considering that. Um, kind of my other forte on my blog is ranting – well, not ranting. It is uh, carefully explaining why young earth creationism uh, claims dealing with astronomy are just really crazy and they don't work. Yeah. But your, your your blog ends up being for people who really like to read blog comments. Uh, it, it's an interesting <laughs> crossroads in, in some ways because you get – you get to, and I mean, you you are always unfailingly polite in in the way you post about things. But but you, I mean, you stick, usually, yeah, yeah. Once in a while, I mean, well, your idea of ire is 
not my idea of ire. I could be a lot more sort of anal expulsive than you, I think. But uh, but you you know, I mean, you you stick to the known facts, and you you know, you you you. you, you you don't overreach with your words and stuff like that. So, and I think the Christians and stuff who come to your blog also sort of react to that, and they're not they're not really out there. Uh, but I mean, you once in a while also do do get the the real, you know, uh, Einstein was wrong. I'm a, yes, I'm a janitor, but yeah. <laughs> so, and then of course you get you know real people interested in astronomy and people who think they know something about astronomy. That would include me, but. Uh, so yeah, it, I mean it's definitely an interesting, like I say, crossroads for people of, of many persuasions. Right, and I guess actually this would be a good time for me to mention um, about the day that this uh, episode is posted, and so I'm guessing that's going to be um, around thanks a little before Thanksgiving time in America, so about the 20th of November. Okay. Um, so better get on that, Carl. All right. Uh, <laughs> so around the 20th of November, I'm going to have a blog post up that is a poll. Um, and I would appreciate uh, anyone who listens to this to find that post um, and vote. The poll is um, – I have been – or it has been suggested to me by more than one person. Uh, so both people have suggested that I write a book about – 2012 and why it's a non-event from an astronomy point of view. And uh, I would just sort of like feedback as to whether or not folks think that it's worth coming out with something like that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know how I'm going to vote. But then I'm your uh, – aren't I your official North American representative or something like that? Yes, you are my official North American media representative. So yes. um, Thank you. All right. It would be a fair vote, I guess, from you. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, I guess we should get back to Richard Richard Hoagland. <laughs> right, so Richard C. Hoagland, and he is often introduced with that C, the C standing for Charles, but often okay. just called Richard C. Hoagland. Um, Hoagland believes a lot of things. Um, he believes way too many things to go into in hopefully a one-hour podcast. Okay. Um, <laughs> hint, hint. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so... He, he believes in a lot of things, and um, I just sort of thought I would go through a very short list, which has about a dozen things on them. Cool. And then we can just talk about two or three of them. Okay. So first off, we talked a little bit about his credentials. Uh, there's a little bit more regarding his credentials, such as he claims that he was the first to propose that Europa, uh, one of the moons of Jupiter, has an ocean under its icy surface. Uh, he claims also that he was one of the first to propose the Pioneer plaque. And so the Pioneer uh, were two spacecraft that preceded Voyager 1 and 2 that went to the outer solar system and had a plaque on it that showed craft and showed pulsars and where Earth is in the solar system and an anatomically correct male and female, which got billed as smut by some politicians. <laughs> Uh, so he claims that he was the first to do these things or that he collaborated with these things, but these are actually highly disputed, and um, I'm going to send you a link that you can provide uh, on your entry for this that is to Phil Plate's Bad Astronomy webpage okay. that sort of goes through his credentials or his claimed credentials and uh, why they're probably fallacious. Okay. Um, 
he is a big proponent of what he calls hyperdimensional physics, uh, which is basically falls under the title of everything you know is wrong. Right. Or, well, he wants to think that everything that physicists talk about is wrong and everything that in the natural world can be united under this hyperdimensional physics, which uses, as sort of its name implies, more than three spatial dimensions to explain things. Um, I've heard hyperdimensional physics described a few times by Hoagland and one of his co-authors, and what I just said was pretty much about the best you can do in terms of a brief explanation. But it has a lot to do also with uh, sacred geometry ideas. Hoagland's not a physicist though, right? No. Um, I've actually not been able to find what his training is, if anything. Okay. Um, I'm pretty sure he does not have a doctorate, not that that means that you're smart or means that you're not smart. Um, I've not actually found any sort of um, history in terms of any type of post-high school degrees, though. Okay. Um, one of your listeners may correct me on that, but I've I've not been able to see anything on that. Okay. All right. So so he right. So he's also into the uh, right the sa- sacred geometry. Yeah. So and this sacred geometry stuff fits in a lot with the face on Mars and his favored region called Sidonia on Mars, which mm-hmm. we can talk. I'm sure we'll talk about more later. Uh, so I'll wait to talk about that later. All right. <laughs> <laughs> but I just thought I would throw that out there with okay. this uh, hyperdimensional physics and sacred geometry. Um, sort of to give your, your listeners an idea of he believes in sort of this new age mystical stuff and nothing that's really actually established physics. Uh, so along with not really believing in established physics – he believes in the exploding planet idea, which is the idea that the solar system had at one point more planets than it does now. And we're not just talking about demoting Pluto from right. a planet. We're talking about the planet that supposedly existed where the asteroid belt is now between Mars and Jupiter. And that this exploded way back when. And the remnants are the asteroid belt. The remnants are – or evidence for it is the destruction on Mars, all of the cratered landscape, as well as the uh, interesting, very interesting moon Iapetus of Saturn. And for you listeners who are Googling it right now, that is (laughs) I-A-P-E-T-U-S, Iapetus. And it's a really cool moon that shows uh, half of it is pitch black and half of it is bright white. And um, this is an albedo difference of going from 0.9, so reflecting 90% of the light it receives, to 0.1, reflecting 10% that it receives. And in some cases, just this change happens over the course of a few tens of meters. Right. Um, Right. So if you you took all the the asteroids we sort of we know know about or even estimate you know are are there, and sort of collected them up into one big planet like you wouldn't actually get much of a planet right right and actually then we must have a psychic link going on here besides just the skype link because that's was that is what i was going to say next oh okay sorry sorry (laughs) that's okay no no that's good so that's exactly the right point that there are major problems with a lot of what hoagland claims um and 
in terms of this exploding planet idea and anyone who claims that the asteroid belt is the remnants of a former planet, if you add up all of the mass of the asteroid belt, you'd get an object that's, you know, maybe, I don't know, 1,500 kilometers across, which is significantly smaller than any of the other planets. And, you know, people might say, oh, well, how do we know? We don't know where all of the asteroids are. We don't know. We, you know, we, we haven't found all of them. After all, Congress is, you know, at least the United States Congress is trying to get NASA to find all of the ones that are going to be dangerous. But, you know, when you get right down to it, you really only need to know about maybe the biggest hundred. Okay. Which we know of. Right. Because if, you know, all of the rest are just going to add a teeny, teeny, tiny bit to the final or the original object. I mean, you really only need maybe the biggest 10 to get an idea of how large that original object would have been. And you just don't get an object that is big enough to have been a planet. Um, and it makes sense that a planet could not have formed there because of interactions with the growing Jupiter, assuming that Jupiter right now is kind of where it was originally. Okay. Wasn't there some sort of a... Isn't there some sort of weird little rule of thumb that kind of – I don't even know the rule of thumb. But if you sort of apply this rule of thumb, it sort of matches where all the planets are. And Right. You're talking about the uh, – I believe it's the Titus-Bode law. Okay. Um, and yeah. the asteroid belt kind of falls in one of those. Right. So the Titus-Bode law or Bode, I've heard both pronunciations, is a very simple geometric formula that you can apply and you can get sort of the positions or you could get the positions of the known planets at the time when it was developed in the 1700s. So from this law, you would get, for example, that Mercury should be 40% the distance from the sun that Earth is when its real distance is 0.39 or 39%. So that's only an error of about 2.5%. Right. You get 0.7 for Venus when it's actually 0.72, and so that's another error of less than 3%. Of course, Earth is at 1. It's yeah. defined as 1. Uh, Mars comes out to – it should be at 1.6, and it's at 1.5. Jupiter is at 5.2, and it comes out that it should be at 5.2. And Saturn comes out to 10, and it's at about 9.5 times the Earth-Sun distance. So when this law was developed, it kind of fit the observed planets with less than a 5% error. Only there was one that was missing. And then Ceres, the largest asteroid, was discovered at one at uh, 2.77 times the Earth-Sun distance when the Titus-Bode law predicted it would be at 2.8. Hmm. And so this is actually one of the reasons why Ceres was initially called a planet. And that was because it fit the Titus-Bode law. But then we discovered Uranus, which had a 2% error. So again, it was good. But Neptune came out with a 29% error. And Pluto came out with a 96% error in where it was predicted versus where it actually would be or where it actually is. So it's you know one of those interesting mathematical relationships that has no physical meaning. And kind of sort of worked, but it doesn't actually work once you know where stuff is. Right. Okay. It's a it's a bit like um, 
maybe not as an American, but as a Canadian, you know, to sort of do, uh, you know, Celsius to Fahrenheit, you kind of like, well, you sort of double and add 32, you know. And, right, so that's an example of a simple geometric progression. Yeah, but as you sort of, it gets wildly inaccurate after in higher temperatures or something like that, so. Well, so, actually, speaking of coast to coast going back there, there is a guy who has claimed to revise, or to have revised the Titus Bode Law to uh, get the actual positions and then claims to have applied this to hyperdimensional physics and all this other stuff, but right. that isn't Hoagland. So, okay. you know, Titus Bode Law still used by some people. All right, sorry. I guess we should get back to Hoagland. All right, so what else? Yeah, what, other, so what other wacky things does Hoagland claim? So that covers most of his um, physics and astronomy ideas um, until we get to the conspiracy stuff. Okay, yes. And since this is the Conspiracy Skeptic podcast. Thank you. <laughs> yes, you are listening to the Conspiracy <laughs> Skeptic podcast. So one of his biggest conspiracies has to do with NASA. In fact, he's co-authored a book that's come out now with a revised edition called Dark Moon. Uh, the subtitle, I think, is The Secret History of NASA. And he claims a lot of stuff in that book. Um, and since I haven't read it, I've only heard him summarize it and interviewed on Coast to Coast. I'm not really going to get much into it other than to say that his basic premise is that NASA is very secretive and NASA has hid a lot of stuff, especially evidence of advanced civilizations on the moon and Mars and elsewhere in the solar system. And uh, one thing that I do have to say Hoagland is very good about is that he really does promote giving NASA more money. Okay. So, you know, he's – in that one example, he's good for my own job security. <laughs> <laughs> but um, he, he really does want NASA to go out there and uh, fund missions to these other – places to bring samples back to then, of course, unequivocally prove that there are advanced civilizations out there that um, have left artifacts, right. including the face on Mars. Um, but if they, don't, if they don't find the stuff he knows is there... Then, of course, it's just going to be another cover-up. Right, yes, right. of course. So, you know, examples of this are um, he was once on an episode of Coast to Coast, I believe it was sometime in August 2008, where he claimed that the Nazis, you know, the bad guys during World War II, all they really wanted was to get back to Mars because they thought they were the original Martians. <laughs> and that Mars, you know, had been inhabited and then planet V, V for not the visitors, but V for five, Roman numeral, that planet V exploded and the Martians, um, you know, vacated their world and came to Earth and basically founded the Aryan race, or at least that's what he claims the Nazis thought. Right. And you know, a very simple, maybe perhaps flippant rebuttal to that is, you know, if they had just told us that, I'm sure the world would have been fine with helping the Nazis get to Mars. You know, they didn't have to do all that Jewish extermination stuff and right, yeah. invading. <laughs> Well, what was it, Werner von Braun? I mean, that, he he kind of conceived that you know within his lifetime we'd be going to Mars. Like he even himself, he might be like 
piloting a little rocket ship to Mars. Wasn't that was kind of his goal, wasn't it? Uh, I am actually not very uh, familiar with the early history of NASA. Okay. Uh, especially Werner Braun Braun, other than claims made by people on coast to coast, and that's, that is not one of them. So yeah, that's true. Okay. I have not familiarized myself with that. Okay. Yeah. So I'm just we wondering can edit if that. that out. Oh, no, that's okay. <laughs> now, now I get to seem smart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought I thought yeah, my 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 sort of reading of the history that that was sort of Werner von Braun. So like 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 when they, um, you know, when they the the moon plan they eventually chose was not obviously the moon plan that would get us to Mars. And he was a little bit disappointed by that. That you know, I think he kind of wanted to build a space station, and then space station, then go to the moon, and then moon to the Mars or something. And, and they kind of did it. Much cheaper, and obviously without Mars as a goal. And okay, all right. So, anyways, that I guess could be. yeah. Okay, sorry. So, Hoagland. Hoagland, yeah. So, um, other examples of uh, this sort of advanced technology that NASA has either found or that the secret government has, and NASA may have and may not have. Um, your listeners may remember the L Cross mission which uh, in popular media bombed the moon last year. Um, This was a mission that basically uh, what my advisor calls litho-braked, as in it crashed into the rock. It litho-braked on the (laughs) south pole of the moon in order to try to send up a plume of material to then uh, chemically sniff it to look for evidence of water. And what Hoagland claimed was that actually what they were really doing is that there was a secret government base in that crater on the south pole or near the south pole of the moon and this is by the you know illuminati secret government whatever and that nasa was actually bombing them and so it was sort of like an intragovernmental war going on um <laughs> And Hoagland has this on his website, and uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that when we get to image artifacts later on in the episode. Uh, He claims various things with the Norway spiral as evidence of his conspiracy. Um, He actually thinks that the Norway spiral was a rocket that had something to do with hyperdimensional physics, and he supposedly proved this by taking a picture of it on his computer screen and taking a ruler up to the screen and measuring different ratios. <laughs> Again, we'll get to the yeah, – that, that's sort of with the sacred geometry stuff. All right. Um, he also believes that one of Mars' moons, Phobos, is a spaceship. Right. So uh, Phobos is this small moon of Mars. It is the closer of the two, Phobos and Deimos. And he believes that Phobos is very much like that spaceship from uh, the original Star Trek series, where uh, I think the title of the episode was The World is Hollow and I Have Touched the Sky. Um, I'm sure some of your listeners are nerdy enough to know that episode. Uh, but basically, yeah, he thinks that Phobos is hollow and is an ancient spaceship. Okay. Is, um, is, is that the one Buzz Aldrin kind of made a bit of a weird, like, maybe out-of-context yeah, comment about? A monument on Phobos. Uh, basically, it was a large boulder that had cast a long shadow. And Buzz Aldrin had made some remark of, we need to go back 
to Mars, or we not back to. We need to go to Mars, and we need to uh, look at especially the moons because there's this mon- monolith on Phobos, and of course Hoagland latched onto that and put up a picture of from the 2001 movie. <laughs> now, as Buzz Aldrin was, he's just sort of kind of being like kind of poetic or making a, a metaphor. Does Buzz Aldrin really think there's a monolith on? Um, in clarifying his remarks, he does not actually think that there's a monolith on Mars. Now, of course, the conspiracy people are like, well, that he's just saying that now because the government's gotten to him and made, you know, fixed up his mind programming. Because that's actually another claim of Hoagland's is that all of the Apollo astronauts who he believes that we actually did go to the moon. Well, but of course, to get evidence of this ancient alien technology. He says that the astronauts have been brainwashed to forget pretty much everything that they saw on the moon, which is why they say in interviews, well, you know, it's all kind of fuzzy now and it all sort of runs together. Right. And it's like, you know, it also was 50 years ago. Yeah. That might have something to do with it. But I mean, one of his sort of a grander claims is, I mean, you know, if there's among pyramids on Mars, that's one thing. But, but he also claims there's like massive cities on the moon, right? Giant right. crystal palaces and the Cylons walking around and you I know. don't know about the Cylons. I, I'm not a Okay. I'm not into that genre of sci fi. Because <laughs> I think it was like in the mid remember when I D four and Independence Day came out? Yes. Okay, right right around then Hoagland sort of had a press conference at the uh, you know the press club in Washington DC sort of claiming that you know I'm going to reveal the secrets of you know these monuments on the moon and and people were like this is really the, I mean the infancy of the internet and people were like I got to know about this like there was this huge outcry to, you know that the media's CNN's got to cover this you know even though it's obviously crazy so they turned out and he's just you know he's showing your blob squatches photos right but i guess that's that's your 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 photo photo anomaly section right yeah so, that, 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 sorry that was just my first yeah. introduction to hoagland is night probably about 1997 yeah um i i think i entered high school that year okay so i wasn't really a, very aware of hoagland at the time i was just becoming aware of phil plate at the time oh yeah okay um yeah phil plate's a better guy to listen to than hoagland about these things oh yeah just put in a little plug for Phil there. Um, so he he has all of these weird ideas that just sort of they they're this grand conspiracy idea where you have the secret government with secret government technology. Some of it may be from these ancient aliens that have left these crystal palaces and cities on the moon and on Mars and elsewhere in the solar system, but is also currently in use by people like current everyday humans now that are on these worlds. So he also claims, for example, that the Mars rovers a few years ago, uh, you know, the biggest issue with the Mars rovers lifetime was that the solar panels were going to get dusty. And so they were going to give less and less power, and eventually the heaters weren't going to be able to keep the craft warm enough overnight or during the winter. But then, miraculously, one day, the solar panels had been cleared. (laughs) And, gee, it's not because 
they set the rovers down in regions of Mars where there are frequent dust devils that have actually been photographed. And there are some very cool uh, animations of Mars dust devils that you can get. Uh, I'm just type into Google Mars dust devil animation. Um, it's not because of that, according to Hoagland. It's because there are actually people from the secret government on Mars who basically took Windex and a paper towel and wiped them clean overnight. You got the squeegee kids on Mars. Yeah, like he he actually said this, and uh, he. I, so now we get to the point of I'm really not sure if he really believes what he says. Okay. I mean. I was always under the impression that, yeah, there are people kooky enough to really believe this, and people do believe this, including some of the people who actually say it. But I have heard from other people that you know have not spoken to him personally, so I don't want to get called out for slander here, but other people have told me that they have some evidence that suggests that Hoagland really doesn't actually believe a lot of what he says. He just does it to you know, sell books and sell videos and right. get media attention. I don't know if that's true or not. So you know, my um, philosophy has always been to look at the claims and not to actually look at the person unless they're making very specific claims about credentials or that kind of thing, which is why I thought I would bring up the credentials at the beginning. Right. So – you know, it's not necessarily actually important whether Hoagland believes this stuff or not. What's important is that it's out there and other people do believe it. Right, right. And so, you know, that can bring us to uh, the infamous face. Oh, okay. <laughs> Which I think, yeah, the face on Mars. Right. So the face on Mars is pretty much the best thing that Hoagland is known for. And if anyone knows of any kind of. Uh, I don't know, uh, pseudoscience or examples of pareidolia, then they think of the face on Mars usually, if not clouds. So the face on Mars has to do with uh, way back in the early days of the space um, of space missions, there was the Viking orbiter on Mars. And the Viking orbiter was photographing the planet at, you know, kind of, well, low resolution compared to today's instruments, but, you know, fairly high resolution for the time. Um, global mosaics that you can get now that was based on Viking data get to about uh, 250 meters per pixel, which is fairly good. But nowadays we have spacecraft that can photograph Mars at 20 centimeters per pixel. So, you know, a factor of 100 better. Um, so the face on Mars is basically this mesa. So it's this hill on the planet that was photographed by the Viking, and it was actually pointed out in a NASA press release that there was this hill <laughs> on Mars that looked like a face. And NASA was unveiling some of the latest pictures and photographs from the Viking craft of this particular region on Mars called Sidonia. Um, I've also heard it pronounced Sidonia. I never took Latin in school, so I'm not sure of the exact pronunciation, but we'll just call it Sidonia. Right. So this Sidonia region on Mars is kind of interesting. It's this region of um, transition between the very cratered, very old um, southern hemisphere 
and the smooth and relatively young northern hemisphere. And in Sidonia, there is or there are a bunch of variously shaped hills and mesas. And one of them in the original Viking photograph looked a lot like a face. And it was a picture that was 70 pixels across. Well, at least the face part was. And it just so happened that because of the lighting at the time, it looked like there was a mouth and something of a nose and an eye. And then half of the face was in shadow. And also, there were a lot of data dropouts. And so there were a lot of black speckles throughout the picture. And one of them happened to land just right where it looked like a nostril. Okay. So it really looked like a face. And NASA announced it as, oh, look, there's this face on Mars. Ha ha, isn't that pretty cool? <laughs> you know, as a fun example of pareidolia. And I guess I'll take a really quick moment to explain pareidolia. Um, pareidolia is basically where you see a feature that reminds you and makes you think of something, but it actually isn't. So the best example, of course, uh, everyday example on Earth is to look at clouds and go, oh, that looks like a bunny rabbit. Oh, that looks like a Wookiee. Oh, that looks like a smiley face. Right. And the face on Mars, well, it looks like a human face. And um, I do recommend a certain episode of the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe podcast of course i don't remember which episode it was where steve novella goes into talking about pareidolia and that the human face is actually what we are biologically or neurologically programmed to most recognize so that's why you see a face everywhere that's why you can see a colon and a parentheses Mm -hmm. and it looks like a face to you right yes or if you're Japanese, you have a carrot, an underscore, and a carrot because Japanese pay more attention to the eyes, whereas Americans and Westerners generally pay more attention to the mouth. I've I've got some I've got a little bit of skin discoloration on my right leg that either looks like the devil or the ghoul from Detroit Television, circa 1970. Go with the devil. Okay. <laughs> I'm sure that some of your detractors think it's the devil. <laughs> Probably, yeah. yeah. Or ex-girlfriends, too. Yeah. yeah or that. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so, so this feature um, looked like a face. And, of course, this was in the 1970s. And it was, you know, pretty interesting. And Hoagland, it was the early days for him, and he just kind of latched onto it. And I don't know if that was the beginning of his insanity or if it sort of pushed him over and it helped him continue or if not just craziness, then he latched onto this and said, oh, let's go with this. And I bet I can make a living out of saying that you know, NASA's hiding stuff. Right. I don't know what it is, but it was uh, the early days for Hoagland as well. And since then, this feature on Mars has been imaged – by pretty much every single craft that we've sent there since. Um, on my blog, I have, of course, a post about the face on Mars that I'm sure that you're going to link to. Right. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. <laughs> um, and in it, it has the original Viking image, but it also has a 3D view, 3D projection of the face from the European Mars Express mission. It has... Um, 
the face as re-imaged by the Mars Global Surveyor in the early 2000s. And then it has the highest resolution photograph ever of the face on Mars, which is from the high-rise camera on the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter spacecraft that I sent you a link for, and you can probably link to that also in your notes, uh, where people can go and zoom in and see what the face on Mars looks like at about 30 centimeter per pixel resolution. Wow. And it's really high resolution, and it doesn't look anything at all like a face except in the original Viking – and that's due to the way the shadows happened to be at that time. Right. However, Hoagland still claims it's a face. It's a face, yeah. That it was built by an advanced alien, you know, whatever, civilization, uh, to do something. And he claims one, – one of his claims is that ever since the original, which was released unaltered, NASA has altered – all of the subsequent image releases to make it not look like a face. Right, right. He, he's got all kinds of crazy, you know, you know, photo measurements or something like that. Like, you know, looking right. at the, so, the so JPEG or something. The, right. So, so there we get into image artifacts. But before we do that, I wanted to uh, say that this claim is actually partially true that NASA has manipulated the photos that it's released. Only the difference is that they manipulate every photo that's released. And this is a simple, basic, very, very basic property, or not property, but process that you have to go through in order to get the image as it actually probably looks as opposed to what it looks to the camera and then is compressed and then is sent back to Earth, and then is uncompressed. And also, you have to take into account things like dust in the camera. You have to take into account data dropouts in the camera. You have to take into account that the camera isn't uh, perfectly linear, so you have distortions in the barrel. And so you have to correct for all these things. And every single image that is released has to be corrected for this. And you you can download free software, get access to the raw data, and process the images yourself. But, you know, Hoagland has claimed that the original image wasn't processed, but everything else actually is. And then, of course, what he does is he processes the processed image that he claims is unprocessed (laughs) and finds all of these artifacts in it, which he claims are rectilinear features that illustrate that it was intelligently built. Right. So that that was kind of a mouthful, but the basic idea that I wanted to get across is that images are processed before they are released. Everything is processed, and claims that NASA has processed them are actually true, but you're left without the context. Right. So then we get into the oh, issue. I was, was, was going to say that. I mean, before uh, I mean, the early days of the internet. Even before I think the um, you know some of the first really good high quality imaging uh, of Cydonia uh, in uh, sort of late nineties, uh, the the company that I think makes the cameras for most of these missions, May May Malin Malin Space Systems. Yeah, uh, 
I don't know if they still do it, but they yes. they devoted a large part of the website just to debunking, you know, Hogan's right. claims, which which is kind of really interesting. I mean, I think this is a, just a very small company, but you know, yeah. Um. I so yes. Um. They have, and I'm sure that you can link to that also in your show notes. And what's also interesting is that. Um, just as another side note, um, your listeners may remember in a previous episode, I talked about Billy Meyer and Michael Horn. Michael Horn claims that the president of the Mayland Space Systems, or MSS, whatever the, it stands for, um, has looked at his own Billy Meyer UFO photos and claimed that they're genuine. And, <laughs> and that, that's something that I have actually been meaning to email Malin about to see if what he actually may have said, if anything. But anyway, that that's sort of a sidestep. So Malin um, is, let's see, I got the history several years ago and I was only kind of half paying attention in class. Right. But basically, Malin does make a lot of the cameras that fly on a lot of NASA craft. So they made the, um, the MOC, the Mars Orbiter camera, um, they made, I'm pretty sure, the Mars Global Surveyor camera. I think that they made the high-rise camera – or no, they made the CTX camera, but not the high-rise camera on the uh, Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter right now. And they make really good cameras. Um, I personally am not a fan of Malin though because they they tend to – keep their data very close to the vest and somehow get around NASA's rules of this has to be released to the public six months after it's taken. So I find myself being like, oh, it would be really nice if I had a CTX DTM of this region. And oh, Malin has it. Oh, but you're not releasing it. Well, crap. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, uh, so Malin, I'm pretty sure, does have a page that debunks the face on Mars stuff. Yes. Uh, that was sort of a long digression. That's <laughs> all right. So we have the face on Mars, which is um, a bunch of pareidolia. But then we get into some of Hoagland's more – and I'll put the word nefarious in front of it, although I'm not entirely sure if um, I really want to imply that there's intent. But he he goes through a lot of image manipulation – and produces a bunch of artifacts that really were not in the original image, but he claims that these artifacts are actually the evidence of advanced civilizations. So if any of your listeners um, – and in the internet age, I'm sure many of them are familiar with JPEG photographs. <laughs> so JPEG is sort of a, the standard de facto image format on the internet. And JPEG is a lossy compression format. So what's nice about JPEG is that you can get fairly good reproductions of an original image with like less than 10% of the actual file size. And the way that it accomplishes this is by getting rid of a lot of the original information. And so when you actually view a JPEG image, depending upon the compression and the quality level, there can be a lot of artifacts, no matter what the compression is with JPEG. And we're not talking about JPEG 2000, which is actually can be lossless. JPEG is lossy, and even if it's saved at the highest quality, you will lose information. And when you reproduce that image, 
you will get artifacts, and these usually look like uh, blotchy or checkerboard or odd color, uh, splotches of color where it doesn't really seem to make sense, or seem or like white will appear something somewhat off-white and not actually appear uh, as it originally did. So what Hoagland tends to do is he takes the released images, these JPEGs, and then he blows them up. So not like explodes them, but he increases the size by like factors of a thousand percent. And then he stretches the contrast and he stretches the colors and he basically amplifies all of the noise in the JPEGs and then points those out and says, look, these are rectilinear features and this is evidence of advanced civilization structures. So, I mean, right now I'm looking at one of his pages, uh, his Smoking Gun 2 page <laughs> about the Elcross mission. Right. Uh, and he's blown up basically this dark, dark region that was in shadow. He's blown it up in size, and then he's stretched the contrast, and then blown it up in size again, and then again, and then enhanced the color, and says, look, this looks just like tunnels and power plants like in Forbidden Planet. <laughs> I mean, this is, you know, the the secret government's space base on the moon and NASA bombed it. <laughs> and uh, yeah, this is another link that I'll give you that you can put in the show notes. It's just, it's like anyone who is a, who has at all ever really done image processing will look at this and be like, what the heck are you talking about? This is just JPEG artifacts or it's just image artifacts. So he does this a lot. He does it all over his webpage, he does it. A lot of his claims are based on it, um, and you really have to question someone who, you know, or at least their motives and their sincerity when they really either have no friggin' clue what they're doing, or they do, and yet they still keep doing it and just claim it's something else. Right. Right. Yeah, I mean it's uh, I mean, it could just be the the old uh, you, you throw enough mud, some will stick. You know, I'm gonna get something right, something you know, eventually. Right, and that's actually a great lead into the third topic. <laughs> about mud. Not about oh, mud, okay. but about the sacred geometry. Ah, okay. About you know just doing a lot of stuff and looking for anything that makes any sort of sense in some way, shape, or form. It's drawing lines between points or something. and Right. So on his website, and again, this is another link that I'll, I'll give you that you can link to in the show notes so that your, your I guess, at this point, viewers can view yeah. while they listen. Um, what he's done is he's taken the region around the face of Sidonia on Mars, and he looks at these mesas and he looks at these hills and says, oh, look, this looks like a pyramid. Oh, here's a crater. Here's a weird rectangular-shaped landform. Here's the face. Now what I'm going to do is put a point at each of these different dots, You know, whether it be the pyramid that I think is a pyramid or the face that I think is a face or just a little knob somewhere. I'm going to draw lines between everything. 
And then I'm going to measure angles. And if I come up with an angle that I like, I'm going to say, oh, look, this is an interesting angle. Or if I don't come up with any angles I like, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the cosine of the angle. <laughs> or I'm going to take the tangent of the angle. Or I'm going to take the sine of the angle and see if that's a number I like. And if I can't get a number that way, then I'm going to take the ratio of these distances. And so this is really what he's done with Sidonia. And um, what he did is he took all of these different things and he looked at these and he looked for ratios or he looked for numbers that to him made some sort of geometric sense. Like, you know, SETI is often said that they're looking for prime numbers. Mm -hmm. So they're looking for a signal that repeats, you know, one, two, three, five, seven, etc. And I'm not going to trust myself. No, nine's not oh, a prime. Okay. This is why I'm like, okay, I'm going to stop while I, I will not make a mistake. <laughs> it's a one, two, three, five, seven, yeah. 11. 11, 13, 17, 19. We'll stop. Okay. Um, or like the Fibonacci sequence, which is where you start with 0 and 1 and then add the previous two numbers together. So it's 0, 1, 1, 2, 3, 5, 8. And so you know, these are numbers that. We don't know of any natural source that would produce these. And so if we find prime numbers in a signal, then chances are that's an, you know, an intelligent source or an intelligence-produced signal. And so he sort of follows the same idea with this geometry, is he looks for numbers that to him would be evidence of a civilization. So he looks for numbers like pi which is the ratio of uh, a circle's circumference to its diameter. Mm -hmm. um, cherry equals pi delicious. That's how I remember that. <laughs> uh, so he looks for pi, or he looks for E. E is uh, you know, something that they use to figure out my interest rate at the bank. You know, epsilon. Seven. No, not epsilon. Oh. Is it epsilon in Canada? I don't know. I thought it doesn't it mean a very small number or something. No, no. That that is epsilon. I put oh, that in okay. reference. You know, add a little pinch of this, so add epsilon. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> no, E is um, you know, it's a mathematical constant. Um I forget what the exact definition is, but it's approximately uh, 2.71, I think. Okay. Um, and pi is approximately 3.1415926. You're getting 2% interest at your bank account? No, 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 no. It's to figure out basically exponential growth. Oh, okay. And I'm not describing this very well at all. Oh, all right. <laughs> it's a mathematical constant. We'll just go with that. Okay, all right. So he looks for. So I'm just saying this all. If you're getting, I want, I want to know your where your bank. No, late, lately I've been getting crappy interest. Okay. Um, you know, I've been getting like 16 cents on twenty thousand dollars or whatever. Okay. Anyway. So he looks for pi, and he looks for e. And then when he can't find them, he looks for, okay, maybe I have e divided by pi, or I have pi divided by e. Or if I don't get that, maybe it's 2 pi over something. Right. Or maybe it's the square root of 2 or the square root of 3 times pi or e or the square root of 5. And this is literally 
what you know anyone who's listening to this who's a rational thinker has to be thinking this is insane right i mean it's obviously what he's doing you're grasping at straws but you know i i just sent you an image that hopefully you'll link to in the yeah. show notes which is labeled Sidonia geometric relationship model where he drew these lines and you see these angles and you just see him basically rambling off you know e divided by the square root of 5 square root of 5 divided by pi in these relationships where he basically just you know threw mud and looked to see what stuck <laughs> so he tends to do this a lot, and this gets more into his sacred geometry as well as the number 19.5, which fits into his sacred geometry and hyperdimensional physics and tetrahedral mathematics. Um, like I think 19.5 is something like the angle you'd get of a three-dimensional tetrahedron circumscribed in a sphere somehow, somewhere. Uh, but he claims that at 19.5 degrees on every object in the solar system, 19.5 degrees north or south latitude, you have something big and spectacular. <laughs> so Sedona – not Sedona. That's in Arizona. Uh, so like Sedonia has 19.5 degrees represented in it somewhere uh, through some angles that he's drawn or for example um, – he says that Olympus Mons, the largest volcano in the solar system, is at 19.5 degrees north latitude on Mars. The problem with that is um, Olympus Mons is larger than the state that I'm in, Colorado. Right. And so basically you could – this is another case where you could just look for something at 13.5 degrees and you're likely going to hit a big volcano on Mars. Right. Um, he claims that – what is it? On Earth, the largest shield volcano um, is found at 19.5 degrees and that on the moon, there's some unique far side feature at 19.5 degrees. And he just goes on and on and on, and it's basically – this is another case where it's like, yeah, you can look at something and say, oh, it's special, but – or you found something special at this position, but if you look elsewhere, you find stuff that's more special or more interesting or just as equally special and unique. Right. So I mean special is a pretty you know, wide definition, right? Right. It's like you know, every time it was like – what is it, 19.5? Right. It's like every time we need 9.5, boom, there's a white castle. That would be like – that would be incredible. Right. But it's uh, – yeah, he just does this anomaly hunting really. Right. Anomaly hunting and drawing lines from one place to another and measuring angles and then doing any math he can to come up with something that seems to be uh, special. Right. To, to overuse that word. <laughs> when we say sacred geometry, I mean like 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 what's sacred about this? Is he sort of relating it to like you know the uh, the actual pyramids in Egypt or something? Or uh, some of it has to do with that, but I think it's sacred in the sense that it's one of his sacred cows. Okay. Um, 
Yeah, go on. I was just going to say, because, you know, the guys who did, uh, you know, Holy Blood, Holy Grail, I think one of their follow-on books, I mean, it was just, again, a lot of this sacred geometry, like, you know, the, what's that, Chateau, Chateau or something, where, they, you know, they think some priest found, you know, the Holy Grail or something, where they're just drawing all these lines, and again, you know, it's like, well, what's your justification for drawing those lines, you know, like... Yeah, well, I mean, according to Wikipedia, which knows all and knows everything, okay, uh, <laughs> sacred geometry is sort of the uh, the, the natural geometric um, sequences and series that we see in nature. Oh, it's okay. natural. So, okay. like, um, for example, um, the pattern of a sunflower seeds, oh, right, okay. which also happens to follow the Fibonacci sequence, or uh, like in a chambered nautilus shell, right, right, the spiral pattern, or in hurricanes. Um, Was it the golden golden ratio? Golden ratio probably fits under the def the broad definition of sacred geometry by some people. Yeah. Okay. So it's just it's another one of those aspects of magical thinking. Right. Really, is what it boils down to. So. I mean, if you really wanted to summarize Richard Hoagland in a statement, and I don't have this written down, so I might ramble in my statement. <laughs> okay. I mean, and, and so, and I'm saying this as in, I don't know if he actually believes this or if he just um, says this uh, to get, you know, to make money and to get media attention. Um, but Richard Hoagland basically believes in a giant secret government conspiracy cover up that there really have been ancient advanced civilizations in various places in the solar system. And this is revealed by him in various, what I would say, fraudulent uh, ways of manipulating images and then very much, you know, as you said, throwing mud at the, at the door and seeing what sticks mm – -hmm ways of finding relationships between different objects and different uh, features that he thinks are important and then ignoring the ones that don't come out with the numbers that he likes. Wow. You, you know, before uh, I ever encountered Richard Hoagland, I remember maybe like the late, early, early 80s, uh, I was in, you know, sort of public library looking at books about the moon and there was like a book from like the 50s this is back before we went to the moon we're, we're sending like probes taking photographs you know for from orbit of the moon and uh you know obviously looking for good landing sites and stuff like that and somebody published a book that was just basically what hoagland is doing today they're taking all these old you know uh, there weren't old photos to them this these were contemporary photos of the moon in the in the, you know, the late say 50s and just going look this is a base you know this is a building and you know these are like little factory crawlers around this crater and and this is this isn't like the late 50s or early 60s someone published a book like this and and you're think i was thinking in 1980 like we know better you know <laughs> we've been to right. the moon we didn't find that crap but <laughs> well you can always add a conspiracy to cover that up Yes, exactly. Which is what Hoagland has done. I mean, another thing a few years ago that was big for him was Data's head on the moon. Oh, right, right, yes. And yeah, for those of you who are not Trekkies, there was a really good two-part episode that was a season finale and season uh, 
Open intro, whatever it's yeah. premiere. Yeah. Um, I want to say season six going into seven, but I could be wrong. Um, of Next Generation, where basically Data's head got lopped off in you know a time portal thing and got left in the I think 1800s on Earth. And uh, basically, Hoagland thinks that he found Data's head on the moon. <laughs> And that he he seriously believes, like he has stated several times on Coast to Coast, that the astronauts must have seen this. They must have brought it back, and that Data's head is probably right now in a lab, and they're trying to you know power it up to see what it has to tell us. Or he says if they, by some stupid miracle, didn't see it, then that's why we want to go back to the moon to get Data's head because of, oh, what could it tell us? Right. Of course, ignoring the many, many problems with that, like you know, if this was from an alien civilization, why would they look human? Why would we have any idea how to power it? Why would it speak English? <laughs> right. You know, it's just there, there are so many problems with what Hoagland claims, but he says it with such conviction. And he has hair, whereas Phil doesn't, that people believe him. <laughs> no offense, Phil, I'm holding too. <laughs> yeah. I join you in that too. But uh, let's say, you know, I mean, before we had a thing called Poe's Law, I mean, I, I, used, to, you know, I used to do a lot of like, you know, write a lot of parody and, and, and stuff like that. And, you know, and my friends, we wrote parody. We, we, so we do, you know, parody. We, we, when we do parody, we always call it like the escape hatch that, you know, that it, it, you're trying to follow the, you know, the form of the, you know, the religious nut or the, you know, the, the, the guy who thinks he's a big communist conspiracy. And you're sort of writing in that form, but there's always like, you always put in something that, that someone who's paying very close attention go, okay, this is a work of parody, you know, and 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 that's your escape hatch. And you can point to it and go, you know, I'm talking about intelligent chickens at this point. Do you really think, you know, that right. this, this is a serious work? You know, something like that. And 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 that's where you, where I keep saying, you know, I don't know if Hoagland honestly believes what he says, but he does say it. Okay, I'm just wondering if his data head thing is his escape hatch. It's like, come on, data's head. <laughs> Well, you know, if 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 the stuff like with the face on Mars and the pyramids and the, the finding all of these angles that don't mean anything didn't convince you before. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I mean, there's really only so many hints that you can do with that. Right. Um, I think, you know, in the legal system, it's that's what the novelty clause like the very small print for entertainment purposes only, or this is a novelty yeah. item. Don't actually take me seriously. Right. Yes. Yes. All right. Oh, are you, anything you want to add about Richard C. Hoagland? Uh, no. Okay. Uh, he's just you know another one of those guys that's that's out there. Although he's been out there a long time, uh, in terms of just sort of manufacturing all this stuff. Yeah, he's built a little <laughs> career around it. All right. Yeah, he definitely has built a career around it. All right. So uh, let's see. That. I've, I mean, I've asked you the Korean questions before. How old are you now? You must have advanced a year in age since the last time you were on. Yeah. Um, I've been 24 now for a while, and it's nice. Okay, good. 
Well, you keep having people on who are younger than me, and I'm like, no, you can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> Next time I'm on, I'm saying I'm 24. Oh, okay. All right. All right. So you go back into the old episode to find out how old I am. Okay, fair enough. And uh, now I was thinking about I'm not going to ask you your small favorite small kitchen appliance for returning guests. I think I had a no, I've got a new question. Okay. Um, you didn't give me time to prepare for this. Oh, sorry. That's good. Okay, it's a surprise. It's your it's your honest answer. Okay. Um, what sort of military from science fiction or fantasy could be movie could be uh, TV, would you join, assuming you could be an officer, would you join just purely based on the uniform alone? Ah, oh, gee. Well, see, I... Let's see. So I actually don't watch too much television or sci-fi or stuff like that. I know your listeners are probably quite flabbergasted now. Okay. Um, I mean, the ones with which I'm familiar are really Star Trek, Star Wars, a little bit of uh, Stargate, but not much else. I mean, I suppose Starship Troopers. Um, I don't know. I mean, I don't think I would want to go for the Star Trek uniform, or at least not the uh, the Starfleet one, because it's kind of form fitting, and you know, They're I'm not a little tight. Yeah, yeah, I'm not fat, but I, you know, I have fat parts. It's like, I know exactly. You know, yeah. yeah, like you can basically look at Riker and be like, okay, this episode was filmed in this year because you got to suck your gut in a lot wearing that uniform. Yeah, well, you know, the same with Data. It's like I didn't know androids, you know, gained weight. <laughs> no offense to Brett Spiner. <laughs> He's a great actor, but it's just like, eh. Um, actually, you know, I do kind of like the older Vulcan uniforms. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I don't know. That's a bad question, Carl. I don't like that question. <laughs> it's it's what it is. All right. So you you would take you would take Vulcan. Sure. Vulcan Science Academy uniform. We'll go with that. All right. It's kind cool. of dark. It's not form fitting. All it right, has cool. the cool cloak, I think. All right, I, we can include Harry Potter under this whole thing because they did say fantasy. So if you want, if you just want to go, with... okay. Well, you know, Harry Potter. I like cloaks. They're, they're academic nice. gown. That's cool. Okay. All right then. And uh, let's see. Uh, anything? Anything you want? You want to plug? Uh, no, just uh, so. When do you think that you'd be that this episode is going to be released or so? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I would probably get it done like near near the end of the week or something like that. So, but if you want me okay. to. Bring it out right before Thanksgiving, American. Well, no, I mean, so so I can. So what I'll do is I will just I will make the blog post on the twentieth of November. So if this comes out before or after that, or if you're listening to this, you know, in December, go ahead and find my blog post on November twentieth, and uh, please vote in my poll as to whether or not you think it's worth doing a small little book on, uh, you know, the astronomy behind the non-event of twenty twelve. Cool. All right. And uh, okay, and so your blog is uh, pseudo pseudoastro.wordpress.com, and that is p s e u d o astro Great. at wordpress.com. And are you going to be doing any skeptic camps coming up? Uh, the big skeptic camp here was, I think, in June. Right. Um, and you know, after this, I'm pretty much. Hiding until I finish my dissertation. Oh, okay. 
Okay. Because uh, yeah, the uh, I'll put a link to your Skeptic Camp appearance. You did a really good job. This was the uh, Colorado Skeptic Camp, hosted by Rich Orman and uh, Reed Reed Esau, the, the the actual founder of Skeptic Camp. Yeah, yeah. Y- your Skeptic Camp appearance sort of inspired me to join the Toronto Skeptic Camp thing and throw my head in to do a, a Toronto to do a little talk at the Toronto Skeptic Camp. But uh, I, I was nowhere near as articulate and and uh, and uh, well spoken as you. So <sighs> maybe next time. Okay. <laughs> but you did a great job, so I'll, I'll post, well, a link, post a link to that. Yeah. Anyways, okay. Well, thanks, thanks, thanks for coming on, Stuart. And thank you for having me. Okay. And if you see Stuart, buy him chocolate. Yes. Not that crappy, you know, Hershey's chocolate bar. You know. <laughs> Sorry, Nigel. Sorry. Now, 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 Nigel's gonna want to come on. <laughs> Who's in Hershey, Pennsylvania? Oh, jeez. Uh, oh, jeez. No, get me a Dove bar or something like that. I'm in or European chocolate. European chocolate's usually much better than American chocolate. I'm in serious trouble. <laughs> okay. All right. Have a good night, Stuart. You too. Bye-bye. Bye.